This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Why Fathers Cry at Night is the title of the new memoir by Kwame Alexander. It started as a book of love poems, but ended up being a book of poems and essays about falling in love, the end of his two marriages, raising two children, and one of them leaving home and cutting ties. Kwame Alexander is best known for his children's books, including The Undefeated, which won the Caldecott Medal. Also, we'll hear from chef Lydia Bastianich. She's won James Beard Awards, hosted a long-running PBS series, and written cookbooks. She'll talk about her childhood fleeing communism after World War II, living in a refugee camp in Italy, where she and her family were housed in a former Nazi concentration camp, emigrating to the U.S., and becoming a chef. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. On the opening page of Kwame Alexander's beautifully written new memoir, he writes, My mother died on September 1st, 2017. Within a month, the cracks in my marriage emerged. They would eventually become impassable canyons. Within two years, our eldest would pack her belongings, clothes, books, heart, and leave home, and leave us. Overnight, I was barefoot on Mount Everest. Unquote. We also learn on the first page that by the time he was two, he was dressed in a dashiki. His father was a Baptist preacher of black liberation theology who assigned books to Alexander and then quizzed him on them, which made Alexander hate books until he later found the books he loved. His mother was an educator who became a principal. Kwame Alexander's new memoir is called Why Fathers Cry at Night, and it's told in the form of prose, poems, letters, and recipes. It's his first book for adults. He's best known for his children's books, which include The Undefeated, for which he won a Caldecott medal. His Newbery Medal-winning book, The Crossover, has been adapted into a Disney Plus series on which he serves as an executive producer and writer. When we spoke, I had a cold and my voice was hoarse, but I didn't want to miss doing this interview. I recorded my end from home. Kwame Alexander, welcome to Fresh Air. Forgive my voice, I have a remainder of a cold. So your wonderful book started as a book of love poems, but turned into a book that's also about the end of love, the end of marriage, a troubled relationship with your father, and troubles with your daughters. I want you to start by reading the opening paragraph from very early in the book, page seven, from a chapter titled, a letter to my daughters, and much of this book is written to your daughters. Would you read that first paragraph? Ever since I was a child and discovered his framed marriage counselor accreditation certificate tucked inside a sexual intimacy and marriage manual in our garage, I have wanted to speak to my father about marriage. Now, as an adult, I wonder, did he and my mother ever hold hands? How did he court her? Did he dance with her and then help her with the dishes? Did he make love to her in the kitchen? Did she rub his scalp after? How did they love is the question I've contemplated asking during those times when my own love life was discomforting or in peril. I've wanted to know more about the woman he had a child with, the woman who was not my mother, his wife. 
I've wanted to ask him, did he love her too? When my mother, fed up, finally moved out, was their marriage better? Did she date? Did he? Why didn't they ever divorce? As I stand on the ledge of the unraveling of my own coupling, I have so many questions for the man who made me, but I'm too afraid to ask. That's a very heavy way to start. Um, now that you've asked those questions in your book, which your father can read, has he answered any of your questions? Wow, has he answered them? My father and I have, you know, had a father-son relationship, naturally, for 54 years. We had our first man-to-man conversation about three months ago after he had read the book. And it was just two dudes, two guys, two men talking about the woes and wonders of romance. And it was a beautiful thing for me. And it, no, he hasn't necessarily answered any of the questions, but I feel like a door has been opened. So if those questions are going to be asked, I have a way in now. And perhaps he, he has a way into answering some of them. I want to ask you about books, because you write in your book that your parents used books as both reward and punishment. Your father was a Baptist preacher. He preached black liberation theology. He had his own small publishing company, sold his books in the churches where he preached, held an annual book fair. He also taught college, I think. Your mother was a teacher and became a principal. What were some of the ways that books were both reward and punishment when you were growing up? Oh, well, you know, as a young child, as a, you know, as an elementary and a middle school student, you know, I like, I used the word forced. And my father, he, he sort of shakes his head when I use that word. But in my remembrance, I was forced to read books that I didn't necessarily want to read, whether it be the Funkin' Wagnalls Encyclopedia. Um, or his dissertations from Teachers College, Columbia University. Like, no books any 11-year-old should have to read. And I would rather have been playing Atari or hanging out with my friends. And so, in my eyes, that was a punishment. Why should I have to do that? Why should I have to work for my father's publishing company as a 12-year-old and lick stamps to put on envelopes that, that housed catalogs for the books that he published. Why did I have to sell books behind a table at a trade show? Why couldn't I just be like a regular kid? You know, on the flip side, my mother was the one who introduced me to Lucille Clifton and Nikki Giovanni and Dr. Seuss and, and made words fun and cool and interesting. And we just, we love to hear her tell stories. She... She loved telling us African folk tales. And so you had these sort of two sides happening in my home where books were cool and books were staid and incomprehensible and un- uninteresting. You know, by writing this book, <laughs> you opened the door to a conversation you never had before with your father. I did. And I remember the exact moment where I was able to sort of glean that, okay, we can, we're going to have a a relationship that is meaningful and significant. Like I can see where in the past I could not see how we were going to be father and son and go to the baseball game and play ping pong and, and do the, and and live the kind of life where you feel good about this bond, this familial bond you have with your parent. Like I never saw how that was going to be possible outside of words. And then one day in 2015, I won this award called the Newberry Medal. And Terry, prior to that, maybe my father and I had talked. We had cool conversations once every three weeks or a month. After I won the Newberry Medal, we began to have a conversation every day for about an hour. And that's, that was eight years ago. And we literally talk all the time. And it's real talk. And I understand that, you know, my father loves through words. He loves through books. And I had achieved this thing that that symbolized and represented all that he cares about. Yeah, it's wonderful that you've, you know, opened that door at the same time. You shouldn't have had to do it. 
you know, like you shouldn't have to prove that you're a terrific writer in order to have a close relationship with your father. He's not your teacher. He's not grading you. I don't know, Terry. That's the thing. I I think I felt like that. I've, I've used those exact same words for so many years. But one of the things writing this book has taught me is to extend a little bit of grace, is to realize that my father loved me in the way that he knew how to love me or in the way that he chose to love me. It may not have been in the way I chose or wanted him to love me. And I thought about that as I began to think about my daughters who are going to read this book. And I think one of the reasons why I wrote it is so that they can put some context about how their dad loved. And it may not have been how they wanted him to love, how they wanted me to love, but I loved them and I cared about them in my way. And here's some of the reasons why. And here's some of the evidence. So I try to extend a little bit of grace to him. And 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 I feel okay with it. My guest is Kwame Alexander. He's a Newbery Honor and Caldecott Medal-winning writer. His new book is his first book for adults. It's called Why Fathers Cry at Night, and it's subtitled A Memoir in Love Poems, Letters, Recipes, and Remembrances. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to my interview with Kwame Alexander. His new memoir is called Why Fathers Cry at Night. It's an unusual memoir in that it's written in prose, poems, and recipes. Your new memoir started as a book of love poems, and your love poems are great, but I especially like some of the poems about the end of relationships, and I'd like you to read an excerpt of one of those now. The poem is called Love Story. Yeah, so this piece is sort of an amalgamation of several different relationships that I've had over the years in college and beyond and me just being in love with love and and trying to understand you know how how love ends and why it ends and not ever really fully grasping any of that five after he introduced her to Nancy Wilson and Cannonball Adderley she taught him the secret to a good omelet, chili powder. They overslept regularly, skipping classes, reading to each other, planning a future. The way she woke him each day was epic and electric. Six. And five years later, it is over, just like that. She holds his hands to her chest, tells him that she is still a word woman, that first and foremost she will always love the way he colors her, line by line, word by binding word, but that metaphors cannot pay the mortgage, that there are no stock options for literary photographers of passion and pain, that dentists don't accept concise wordplay as payment, that all the beautiful music in the world don't mean a thing if we don't have a vehicle to carry the hopes and dreams in our heart. 7. The next day, 
when he watches her drive away in the two-door metallic gift to the sound of a runner stealing home in the ninth inning, he knows the masquerade is over. And so is love. And so is love. I really, uh, among other things, I love the way you reference music and your poems and recipes. And I thought this is a good moment to hear an excerpt of the Nancy Wilson Cannonball Adderley album that you referenced that has The Masquerade is Over on it. It's a gorgeous track, although we don't really hear Cannonball Adderley on it. Um, so uh, I want to make sure that we hear the second verse that she sings, which is that your words don't mean what they used to mean. They were <laughs> once inspired, now they're just routine. Yep. So here's Nancy Wilson. Your words don't mean what they used to mean. They were once despised. Now they're just. I'm afraid The masquerade is over And so is love And so is love I guess I'll have to play Pagliacci Did you reference that song in this poem because it's not only an incredibly beautiful track but because it has those lines your words don't mean what they used to mean they were once inspired now they're just routine Absolutely Absolutely. It's, it, there's so many, you know, uh, crossovers in this piece. And reading it just reminds me that in college, I listened to, to hip-hop and R&B. And I come home one spring break, and I'm in my attic, and I discover a crate of jazz records. And these jazz records belong to my father. And I, I know that because his name is stenciled at the top of the jazz records. And one of the records I borrow and take back to Virginia Tech is the Cannonball Adderley Nancy Wilson album. And I'm playing it nonstop. And I, I invite a woman over and I play it for her on my used record player. And I make her, you know, I cook for her. The food wasn't that great. You know, I was way out of my league with her. But this was sort of my way of trying to be cool and be and find and have her find me interesting. And she we listened to the jazz and and we and we ate the food and and we kissed and 2 years later you know she married me and 4 years after that you know the thing about writing a memoir is damn you just you you are saying all of your stuff you're putting it out there and this is this is really challenging because I've always been that person who hasn't opened up who hasn't shared but we're here now. So four years later, we're married and and she's about to get up to go to work. And, you know, I'm a poet. I've written my first book. I'm not making any money. My books aren't selling. Nobody knows who I am. But I'm, I'm loving this life of being a writer. But I forgot something. I forgot to pay the car note. And so she wakes up to go to work and the car is gone. It's been repossessed. And that was the day... You know, her mom took her to work, and when she got off work, we had a talk, and she said, it's over. Poetry isn't going to pay the bills. I, I love the fact that you want to be a poet, but it's not, it's not going to work for this family. You have a daughter. You have a wife. And so this poem, it comes out of that, uh, out of that sadness that I was, you know, I, I played a significant role in, in that in that happening. So 
you know, there's so many different things. The jazz, my dad's records, Pam, marriage, love, and trying to figure out how to make a life out of words when they're not serving you. Did you think about giving up writing as a profession when that happened? Never. And that's the sad. <laughs> that, I don't know if it's sad. It's not sad. You've been incredibly successful. One of your books has turned into a Disney Plus series. You're, the, you're an executive producer of it and a writer. And, you know, that's the rub, Terry, is that all of these things, you know, were happening in my career. And it's just been hugely successful, as it were. And But I couldn't sleep. And I found myself just not being engaged with life in a real in a real happy way and i had to stop and say well what's going on everything's going right but you don't feel that like you should and when is that going to change has it changed oh it's it's definitely been i it's best <laughs> writing this book has been so eye opening and awakening for me because it has allowed me to begin to see the things that have not served me. You know, I can acknowledge them. I can understand them. Now, that is not the end of the work because that's that really is just the beginning. So I've I've then had to sort of begin to put in the work to to bring into fruition all these things that I now know about myself and that I'm still learning about myself. So I I, I think and I hope that it is working. We've talked about your life as a son. I want to talk about your life as a father. You write that you learned how to father from men who failed miserably. Do you want to explain what you mean, or would you rather read that section from the book? I'd love to read it. Go ahead. I also learned how to father from men who failed miserably. The friend of my father's who got into a violent argument with his wife in my grandmother's driveway and, upon being chased by a knife-wielding woman, proceeded to lift his seven-year-old daughter, my best friend, in front of him as a shield. A college friend's father who'd been sentenced to prison for abusing troubled teenagers during his kids' sleepovers. An old girlfriend's father who lived around the corner her entire childhood and never once came over to see her who never invited her to his house, who refused to acknowledge her even when she walked past his house, a monsoon of heartbreak forming behind her juvenile eyes. I wasn't any of these men, and I would never be, but I carried the weight of their failures with my own insecurities as a father. How did you try to counter that as a father? Well... I tried to be there. I tried to be there with my with my daughters in a really present way. And and again, you know, not knowing how good or bad I'm doing, just doing it, just doing the work of being a father. And of course, you know, looking back on it, looking back on what I've how I've been as a father and who I've been as a father. Man, I've made so many mistakes. My 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 youngest daughter, you know, she she doesn't necessarily like us or like me coming to her 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 athletic games. And I'm like, "Why?" No, I just don't want you to come. And and part of me understands that that reason, even if she can't articulate it, that when she was 6, she played in a on a basketball team and she was she was the tallest person on the court because I'm 6'4", so of course she's pretty tall and and she asked to be taken out of the fourth quarter because she was tired and I remember going to the bench and saying, you need to get back in that game. What are you doing? Why are you? And she's like, I'm tired. I was like, I know, but they need you. I remember her going out and running up and down the court really lackluster and her team, they happened to win and after the game, she was so excited and I remember going up to her and saying, I don't know why you're excited. You know, you didn't give your all. You need to be out there if you're on the court, play with energy. And I just went, I I went, I lit into her and she just cried. And Steph came over and, you know, sort of hugged her and gave me a look and took her. And she went to ballet or violin practice. And I never thought anything about it. And the next week she played her butt off and made the all-star team. And I felt like the best father in the world. 
but I haven't been able to go to any of her games because she doesn't want me to come now and she's 14 years old. So I failed, man. I failed in my own ways. And again, I think two things I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn from that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn from that so I can be better now. And I'm 54 years old. And my hope is that it's not too late. And that I also hope that these two girls, these two daughters, Nandi and Samaya will, will extend a little bit of grace to me (laughs) that I realize I need to extend to my own father. At the time you wrote the book, you were not communicating, or rather I should say your eldest daughter was not communicating with you. And can I ask you to read the few lines about that toward the end of your book? The other daughter who came to live with me at 15, a quiet, consistently kind, altruistic, reliable, and industrious woman, told me in the middle of a familial disagreement, one of only a few heated arguments we've ever had, that she would never speak to me again. It's been three years, and she is immovable. At night I sit in the dark, in the space between hope and heart, the grief stealing warmth, trying to remember how to love, trying to figure out the right words to bring you both back to me. Have things resolved? I was hoping maybe they had in the time between the book was written and now. She sent an email to to one of the to, to one of the folks on my team and she said that she had heard that the book was out and this was when it was an advanced reading copy before it hit the shelves she'd heard that it was out and she wanted to know if she could read it because she wanted to prepare herself and her mother in case in case i talked about them in a way that might be embarrassing or revealing their private life basically if i if i were if i was going to put her stuff out there in the world to tell her business and i just oh that just hurt that hurt my heart so much because a i would never do that that's that's the first thing and the second thing that she was feeling that kind of you know that heartache it just the father in me just and I couldn't I couldn't do anything to to help to it just it, it hurt and so I I sent her the book with a note and about a month later because there's nothing in the book that's going to embarrass her or make her feel less than or or put her business out there like I I love her dearly and a month later she she emailed me and she said I, I'm ready to talk please send me some dates and times you're available and the thing that just got me that made me smile that made me see that it, there's some hope here is the way she signed it she said um, thank you, comma, dad. And that meant everything. So at the end of your book, you know, your marriage has broken up. Your mother has died. Your older daughter had stopped communicating with you. And this all happened within a short period of time. How has all of that changed you? Um, all of that happening at the same time and kind of leaving you leaving you alone in a way that you hadn't been during your adult life? Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's left me in this space of realizing that I am not a grown man, I'm a growing man. It's left me feeling renewed at the possibility of having the kind of life that I would have never thought possible Since this book has been written, I have spent time with my three siblings 
in a way that we haven't spent time together since we were living in my parents' house together. I've had conversations with my father that I never would have thought I had. I have been honest and forthcoming in a way that has been painfully hard. And I have felt so good. I've been able to sleep at night. I've been able to walk through life and feel a lot better about who I am and who I am becoming as a man. And so, you know, I have built this beautiful writerly career and I've, I have used, I, I have strategized and planned and enacted. And now I am going to spend, you know, a great deal of time doing the same thing in my personal life so that I can have, you know, the most fruitful and, and uplifting and and interesting, you know, relationships with the people I love and who love me. Well, I think this is a really nice note to end on. Congratulations on the book and all the good changes it's brought in your life. It's really been a pleasure talking with you and such a pleasure to have read your book. Thank you, Kwame. I'm so honored and your thoughtful and kind questions, and I just really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Terry. Kwame Alexander's new memoir is called Why Fathers Cry at Night. We recorded it last month when I had a cold, which is why my voice was hoarse. Coming up, chef and PBS host Lydia Bastianich will talk about being a refugee after World War II, coming to America, and of course, Italian food. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how Betterment's innovation can help Americans save. The real innovation for Betterment about a decade ago was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging, that includes taking a long-term view and not getting distracted by market volatility. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. And what Betterment did is they basically said, no matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Learn more about automated investing and saving at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Our next guest, Lydia Bastianich, is a celebrity chef famous for her Italian recipes. She has a long-running PBS series, Lydia's Kitchen. She's written over 15 cookbooks, has owned several restaurants, and has won multiple James Beard Awards. Her family lived on the Italian peninsula Istria. As a child, she learned a lot about cooking from her grandmother, who was poor, and cooked over a wood fire. During the periods she lived with her grandmother, all of the ingredients were from her grandmother's garden or from the livestock her grandparents raised, including two pigs a year. But after World War II, the peninsula changed hands from Italy to communist Yugoslavia. Bastianich's parents were followed by secret police, and her father was arrested. Her family managed to flee after the border closed, and for a couple of years they lived in a refugee camp in Italy that was a former Nazi concentration camp. Then her family emigrated to the U.S. Her show, Lydia's Kitchen, returns for its 11th season in October. I spoke with Bastianich last month at a WHYY event at which she was presented with WHYY's Lifelong Learning Award. So you grew up in Istria, which is a peninsula kind of parallel to Italy. The northwestern tip is attached to Italy, and the northeastern tip is attached to Croatia. Mm -hmm. Um, The year you were born in 1947, that was the year that the peninsula that you lived on switched hands from Italy to Yugoslavia, which was communist. So your mother was pregnant with you at the time. A lot of their friends fled Istria because they didn't want to live in a communist country. 
But because your mother was pregnant, your father said, you're not going to give birth in a refugee camp, so we're staying. When you look back at that time and think about what a consequential decision your parents had to make while your mother was pregnant with you, what do you think about when you reflect on that? Um, you know, Terry, when I reflect on my life, I'm grateful. I had a, a wonderful life. I have it, a wonderful family. So I cannot regret anything that happened. If anything, in that period maybe of having a hard time and difficulties and not being able to speak your native language, not being able to uh, respect your religion and go to church and all of that, uh, at, at, at the time it would seem very oppressive. And it, it, it is, it is. And then you ended up moving to... Um a refugee camp, which was actually, it was called San Saba. San Saba, yes. San Saba. And it was basically a former concentration camp during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a picture of it in your memoir. It doesn't look good. <laughs> no, it's no, still... No, describe what the atmosphere was like there. I think you didn't know at the time that it had been a concentration camp, but... You know, th- there was a crematorium there, too. There were the ovens. So, like, what was the feeling? Did it feel haunted even though you didn't know what had gone on there? Yes, there was a feeling of darkness. There was a, there was a smell. There was, you know... What was the smell? I, it was musty, uh, mud... Uh, because also the courtyard, you know, it was enclosed. Everything was enclosed. It had this big gate, and you couldn't pass. Now, just to to, to explain how, explain how we got there, when when we came and my father met us, we didn't have the papers. We didn't have complete papers. So, had we remained in Italy, we could have asked for it, Italian uh, uh, refuge. Uh, but my parents decided even Italy was in. in in, in conditions after the war, let's try and go on to America or Canada, whatever. So we were there without papers. And had the police, because the Yugoslavs had secret police in Trieste. Oh. So, and they kind of would spot uh, uh, people that escaped, you know, because they're kind of uh, look lost. And they would repatriate them. You know, they would bring them to the, to the guards and say, listen to the police, they don't have any papers. These need to go back. So we, my parents, immediately decided to go to the police and ask for asylum. And at that point, uh, if you ask for asylum, you're an immigrant without papers, and they put us in the camp. And then there, it's controlled. You can't leave, you can't go out, you have to stay within those boundaries. And it was closed. It was closed, it had one main entrance, and it was uh, like a big courtyard, and there was uh, 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 dirt on it, so when it rained and all that was really, really muddy. And the, the rooms, we had little, little cubby halls, and uh, they were separated by um, no wall, but cardboard paper, uh, boards, uh, uh, even some with, with uh, uh, cloth. That was the separation, so you, you heard everybody. Uh, we had two, two um, uh, beds, what do you call them, on top of each other? Uh, bunk beds. Two bunk beds, yeah. yeah, one for the kids and the other side, my parents. And we, we stayed there until we began the process of uh, vetting and beginning to file our papers. You had a lot of trauma as a child, whether you recognized it as trauma or not. And I'm w- wondering what the relationship in your life has been between food and trauma, because one way of trying to soothe yourself when you're suffering through a trauma or reliving the trauma is to eat or to eat comfort foods, foods that you love. Of course, at the time, food wasn't plentiful for you. It was scarce. So what do you think in the long term, like your relationship between food and trauma has been? Uh, My relationship, uh, definite realization, uh, what food meant to me was when we were in Trieste, in, in Italy, in the camp. And I did not know that we were not going to go back to grandma. And so that feeling of unfinished work, I hadn't said goodbye to my grandmother, to my friends. But when I realized that I wasn't going back, food became my connector. When my aunt would cook the food, the smells, it brought me back to my grandmother, to that place. And I realized 
that I could do that to satisfy myself. And then I realized that, you know, I was pretty good at it. And then I realized that I could nurture and feed other people. And I loved that, just like my grandmother did. And so on, my life became exactly that, uh, a life of cooking and nurturing from family to people, and ultimately, the opportunity of turning it all into a business. So when you were in the former concentration camp, at some point you were allowed out to go to a convent school. You had come from the peninsula where basically religion had been banned. So you started to learn about Catholicism, and you also worked in the kitchen there, and that you've described that as your introduction to commercial cooking. Mm-hmm. What's one or two of the things that you learned that you later were able to apply to restaurants? Well, uh, how did I get to go to the school? There was a, a family, actually, Signora Leonori. She was a wonderful woman. She had three sons, and one of them was autistic. And uh, she was looking for somebody to help her son, and she went to the camp, and my mother was a, an elementary school teacher, and, of course, the Italian, we spoke Italian. So she asked her if she would come on a regular basis and that she would pay a little bit to her, but also that she would pay her schooling. So, uh, you know, they, per- they gave her the permit to go, and she would go every day, bring me to the convent. The convent was right next door, right next door to the, Mrs. Leonori's house. And uh, uh, I guess, I don't know how much she contributed to my education, but the nuns also, I guess, felt that maybe I should help out a little bit to, to make, make up for my soul. They, I was in the kitchen. In the morning when I came early with my mom, mother, they would put me there, peel the apples, peel the potatoes, whatever. Uh, then, and then uh, the first time that I saw those big pots and, you know, really uh, uh, sort of institutional cooking because they had, uh, the school was there and they would cook a meal for the children every day. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. But also, you know, the religion was there. Grandma tried her best to take me. So I was a little bit, but... I was, it all always revived when I went to that convent, my commitment uh, uh, and understanding who I am and my, my, my culture. So you came to America when you were 12. You met your future husband at your own Sweet 16. Yes. And um, he was also, he was from the same peninsula, right? He was. He was from the other side of the peninsula, yes. Yeah. And you got married like midway through college. Yes. And you left college because you also got pregnant soon after you were married. And um, of course, your mother was very upset. She wanted you to finish college. She was very upset. Yeah. Um, So, and your son, after being... um, when he was 18 months old, he was diagnosed with um, a kind of blood bone disease. No, that... with Perthes. Perthes disease is a bone disease, and it is in, in uh, developing infants uh, on, in the hip joint, the round part. It doesn't get enough nourishment, and if they walk, they consume it, and ultimately club food sets in. So he had to stop walking for a year. So just when children are really like learning to walk... He couldn't walk. He was in a, um, uh, not a cast. Um, a brace. A brace for he had a brace. He like had 18 to, months. He had to keep his legs so that yeah. the, the bone would get the nourishment. And this is about the same time that you and your husband are starting your first restaurant, right? Uh, it, yeah, just after we were planning, but just after that, yes, we opened our first restaurant. What was it like for you as a mother of a son who needed a lot of attention, I'm sure you were very worried about him, to also be having this new undertaking with your husband. And you were needed at the restaurant, and you were needed at home. Well, what, it's hard for a mother to hear that a child, no matter you know what the, what the illness is. So the fact of uh, assessing that and understanding, and understanding that it eventually could be cured, uh, that sort of alleviates you because you're part of the solution uh, so keeping him in 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 a brace uh, with metal bars in front of it, and it had this this uh, what what is this thing that sticks that you can stick it? They use it on everything. Vel- Velcro. Velcro. So they were with Velcro. So of course this young kid, uh, he was uh, what was he? he? Was two two and a half. 
zoom, zoom, he would pull up and he would start running. And I would run after him, <laughs> put him, put him back in, in into these braces. So it was, it was a tough time. But uh, again, I consider myself blessed in the sense that I had my mother and my father. We always kind of by now, we had nobody else. We lived together in the sense. Uh, I, my first few years, uh, few a year or something of marriage, of course, you need your independence. But as soon as Joe came uh, and all that, they moved in and uh, they were uh, down, downstairs and, you know, the typical uh, setting of, 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 uh, of a mother and daughter. So that's where they help raise your yes. son. Yeah, they were there. Uh, I, I couldn't have done what I did without the support, certainly, of my family, of my mother, of, of, of everybody uh, around. But uh, uh, when I first had my daughter, of course, I took uh, uh, two or three months off, and then it was time that really I needed to go back, I needed to, and, and I was kind of questioning myself. So I, I went to the pediatrician, you know, we had no psychiatrist at that time. At least, <laughs> at least we didn't go to psychiatrists. So we went to, uh, to the, uh, I went to the doctor and I said, yeah, I told him that I feel, you know, I don't know what to do. I have this child, I'm the mother, I'm responsible. I want to be with her. Uh, and yet, you know, the business, unless I help my husband with the business and all that, we might not be able to do a lot of things. And he was very wise. He said, Lydia, children are happy within the family. They understand. Children come into a family. You don't change the family because children come into it, which happens a lot of times. So that's it. okay. Our priorities were we had to we had to work to feed and whatever. He said, children want happy parents. You know, I said, okay. I can live with that, and so it happened. Uh, I, 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 we, I managed with my mother. I gave my kids the best time. I included them as much as I could when I was doing. I was bringing them to the restaurant as much. They had the dinner. They had their time. Uh, we, the weekends, Mondays was the day off because we would always do special things with them, and they were happy. And I think that's why my children are back running the business, even though I told them that. This is not what they should do when they grow up. <laughs> you should get an education and go on. They're back into it. What was on your first menu in your first restaurant? Oh, it was all Italian-American because, you know, in 71, all the famous restaurants were Italian-American. And uh, certainly the chef that we hired was Italian-American. And then once I went into the kitchen, then I began to kind of uh, modify and, and, and add, add polenta, add risotto, and that's where sort of... I made my space. But you started off with the larger meatballs. Absolutely. <laughs> the larger, the better. <laughs> Your mother died in 2021 during COVID. It Was did. it COVID-related? No. She died of a heart uh, condition. Uh, she was uh, 100 in January and died in February. Wow. So, you know, as much as still to this day, because she always lived with, uh, with me, I'm grateful I had, uh, you know, I didn't have her for all 100 years, but I had her until her 100th year. Your father died, um, was it in 1970 or something? 71. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't live... 81. He didn't live to see how successful you became as a, as a <clears throat> chef, as a restaurant owner, as a TV personality. He didn't live to see that, but your mother did. You must be so grateful that she lived to see that and to know that the choices that they made worked out so well in the long well, run. Well, you know, going back to the moment uh, of being an immigrant and coming, there were a few times that, you know, I caught my mother. My father. You, you kind of, you know, parents whisper. They think the kids don't hear, you know, uh, did we do the right thing or maybe we shouldn't? Uh, is this going to be okay for the kids? And I always felt, and my brother as well, you know, that... Uh, we wanted to show them that the decision was absolutely right. They couldn't have done a better thing, and I kept on telling her. But also, she was very much part of this success. And again, if you see my shows, she was in the house. My kids were in the house. So this, this, is, this was real. I, you know, I didn't have a scripted show. I don't have script. I ad lib. I speak. I, you know, we create uh, a menu. We create talking points, and then I'm... I'm there, so my shows are quite open and real and with some preparation. And my mother was always part. Now, for those of you that still watch the shows, 
my mother, even after she passed, I just couldn't leave her off the shows. And at the end, we end the show with her singing some songs. And we're going to do the same. It's, it's uh, in honor, to honor her, because she was such a big part. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. I want to thank you for your recipes, for your TV show, and also just for your strength. Thank you, Um, Terry. So I appreciate that. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. Lydia Bastianich is the host of the long-running PBS series Lydia's Kitchen. It returns for its 11th season in October. Her new cookbook will be published in September. We spoke last month at a WHYY event at which Bastianich was honored with WHYY's Lifelong Learning Award. Our thanks to Ellen Steele and Tina Kalecki. Here's Lydia with her late mother, Erminia. Okay, you're going to sing for us? Do you want me to sing? <laughs> Whatever you like. Right? Bevevano i nostri padri? Si. Take a glass. Bevevano le nostre madri? Si. E noi che figli siamo, beviam, beviam, beviamo. E noi che figli siamo, beviam, beviam, beviam. Salute. Salute. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Fresh Air's co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections.